0: Would you please stand with me as we read the word of God together this morning, and open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is our reading for this morning. Psalm 46, for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah, set to Alamoth, a song, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Amen. Pray with me this morning. Our Father in heaven, as we bow before you this morning, we recognize that you are the Most High God, that you are the Almighty God, that you are the only true and living God, that you are the King of all of creation. You are the sovereign ruler and master over all things. You are exalted among the nations. You are exalted in the earth. And Father, with all of this language of transcendence, we are also reminded by this psalm of your imminence, of your nearness, That not only are you exalted in the earth, you are with us. And that you are with us favorably. You are disposed toward us, your people, in grace and in mercy and in kindness. And you are our refuge and our strength and a very present help in trouble no matter what that trouble might be. And therefore, Father, we say with the psalmist that we will not fear. We will not fear, for we will trust in you. You are our stronghold. You are our strong tower. And we run to you and we are safe. You are our Deliverer, our Savior, our Redeemer. And Father, on this Lord's Day, we are reminded once again that on this day of the week, the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We thank you that the work of redemption is finished, that the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins was a sufficient payment of our debts. We thank you that the death of Jesus satisfied your holy justice and wrath, and that by repentance and faith in your Son, we are now forever in a state of grace in Christ. You are for us. You are not against us. You love us. You do not hate us. And you are the faithful God. And you never leave us to ourselves. Father, I pray that this morning we would have a greater sense of your nearness, of your presence, of your faithfulness. Father, I pray that you would bring comfort to your people. I pray that you would enable all of us to cast our cares, our burdens, our anxieties upon you because you care for us. I pray that you would enable us to trust in you with all of our hearts, no matter what trouble we may be facing. We thank you that you are faithful to give us the necessary grace and strength to endure whatever trial you ordain for us. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to sing. Our faith is a singing faith. The gospel is so glorious that it makes us sing. It makes us to delight in you. And Father, oh, how I pray that you would keep us from singing with our lips, but not with our hearts. Father, may we be attentive to your word. We humble ourselves under the authority of your word and we acknowledge that we need to be taught. You are our instructor and we are your students. And we pray that you would teach us today what it means to hope in you and to trust in you with all of our hearts. We love you. We thank you that you hear our prayers. For we pray to you in the name of our only mediator, your Son, and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Recently, I read about a family from Arizona, the Dodd family. Around the beginning of this year, Matt, the husband and the father in that family, was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. He underwent conventional treatment, but he died just a few weeks ago on July the 18th. He was only 37 years old. He leaves behind a wife and four young children. On the day Matt died, his wife Cameron wrote a letter that I would like to share with you this morning. It is a painful letter, and yet it is a letter that is filled with the hope of God. Here is what Cameron Dodd writes. And so at noon today... Matt breathed his last in this world and woke up in the next. The moment came after four days in a near comatose state, about four days longer than what hospice predicted. We have spent our time since Saturday watching and waiting with Matt for the time God ordained before he was even born to be with him in heaven until it arrived at last. There was nothing pleasant about watching him die, except for the sweet fact that I was able to be with him. In fact, in God's providence, despite being literally surrounded by friends and family almost nonstop for the last few days, I was alone with a stranger from hospice when the time came. There were a few terrible, fearful moments right afterwards, as I was alone with his body, where I wondered if I would be able to live my life in the Lord for the next 12 years without Matt just as strongly as God has enabled me to for the last 12 years with him. It felt for a brief and terrible moment like I had lost everything. So I picked up my Bible. And alone in my room, read passages that just hours before I had read to Matt to encourage him. I realized that these verses I could now read just to my own soul. Verses like, God is our refuge and strength. I thought about how the things that I so dearly loved about Matt were really only tangible reflections of who God is, his love and joy and humility and kindness, and that lo and behold, I still have him that is God, and therefore I still have everything. She continues, Matt's joy today is unmixed. He is where he has longed to be Since he became a Christian back in junior high. He is with the source of his love and joy and hope. And thusly we weep not for where he is now. We weep rather for where we are yet. Here in this broken world without his reflection of joy and love and hope. There is a place and a space in my heart reserved for Matt that is now unoccupied. And I feel that space more deeply than I can quite put into words. But the thing is, there is still joy and love and hope even in this broken world because Matt was not the source of it. God is. And that life and light he so exuberantly radiated We're never rooted in him but in Christ. And the God of Matt Dodd is yet my God. The savior and sustainer of my husband is yet the same savior and sustainer of my own heart. So the sorrow in this house is palpable. And the abrupt change in our family seems unbelievable at times In its scope, but there is still quiet joy and hope undergirding the entire structure of our family. My kids' prayers today reflected that. We will sing and laugh and dance in this house again. Maybe not today, maybe not for a little while, but one day. Because all is not lost. Matt is already saying, Light and momentary. He is already declaring death, gain, and absence from the body, presence with the Lord. And we rejoice for him and with him. And we also weep and hold each other's hands as we look to a tomorrow that will be very unlike today. But mostly, we look to the Lord and his good and infallible purposes and say with Jonathan Edwards, the Lord was good and did good in giving Matt to us. The Lord was good and did good in leaving him with us for so long. And the Lord was good and did good in taking him from us. That is a riveting Letter, And I read that to you, beloved, as a reminder that in this fallen world, there is terrible pain. But there is always hope in God, even on the darkest of days. At this point in our study, we are considering our third and final major point. You can see it on your bulletin insert, Roman numeral 3 the remedy for spiritual depression and under this heading we are developing a number of subpoints we have already looked at the meaning of christian hope and the foundation of christian hope and now we are looking at the cultivation of christian hope as christians we understand theologically that we have hope in christ we understand that the gospel is the ultimate remedy to our spiritual depression but our experiential knowledge of our Christian hope tends to come and go. And therefore, it is vital that we know how to cultivate Christian hope in our lives so that the roots of hope will run deep in the soil of our souls and produce spiritual stability. Beloved, it is the will of God for your life that you experience the full assurance of your hope in Christ. As we saw last time, the first way to cultivate Christian hope is to, number one, distrust yourself. If you are going to cultivate Christian hope in your life, you must develop a healthy distrust of your own heart, of your own deceitful thoughts and emotions. When your dark thoughts and your dark feelings of despair tell you that there is no hope, do not believe it because it is a lie. Secondly, as we saw last time, it is to talk to yourself. If you are going to cultivate Christian hope in your life, you must talk to yourself. To yourself. Instead of listening to your own thoughts and feelings of despair. You must speak the truth of God to your own soul. You must tell yourself to hope in God as the Bible directs you to. You must instruct yourself. You must preach to yourself. You must exhort yourself to hope in God. You must remind yourself of who God is. You must remind yourself of what God has done for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you must remind yourself of the great hope, the great living hope that God has given to you in the gospel of Christ. That brings us now to a third way to cultivate Christian hope in your life. You must, number three, fight for faith. I have been careful to word this point the way that I have, fight for faith, that is very intentional, that is faith in God. The Bible is exceedingly clear on the centrality of faith in the life of the Christian. In fact, without faith there is no Christian life, none. We are saved through faith and we live by faith. Justification is through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Sola fide. You were saved from your sins when by God's grace you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only one who could save you and as the Lord and the master of your life. But the Bible goes on to say that once a person is justified through faith in Christ, he or she begins a journey of living a life by faith, faith in God. We could say it this way, the faith which justifies is also the faith which sanctifies. It is the same faith. Let's begin by opening to Romans chapter 1. And a verse 16 what is a very familiar verse to us. Perhaps most of you or all of you have this verse memorized. It is the theme verse of the book of Romans. If you want to know what Romans is about go no further than Romans 1:16. Paul writes for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I want to narrow our focus upon one little phrase in that verse, verse 16, everyone who believes. That little phrase is present tense. It could be translated this way, everyone who is right now believing. Everyone who is right now believing. In other words, saving faith in Jesus is not a one-time act in the past. It is an ongoing way of life. At the moment of your conversion, you first believed in Jesus, and from that time, you have continued to believe in him. This is the nature of saving faith in Jesus. It is a faith that once it begins, it continues it is an ongoing faith. It is an enduring faith. It is a persevering faith. Moving from Romans, let's turn briefly to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to another very familiar verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. The Apostle Paul simply says here, "...for we walk by faith, not by sight." You are not only justified through faith, you walk by faith. You live by faith. This is your life. And then Galatians 2.20, another very familiar verse. Galatians 2.20, Paul speaking about the centrality of faith in the life of the Christian Christian. And he says very famously, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so now that you are a Christian by faith in Christ, listen, you live by faith. You walk by faith. As a Christian, you are a believer. You are a believer. Your life as a Christian is characterized by believing. You are one who possesses faith in the one true and living God, and in His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a believer, not an unbeliever. But if we are honest, sometimes, if not oftentimes, it is a struggle to trust God. It is for me, especially in times of trial and adversity. In times of trial and adversity, your heart becomes like a master prosecuting attorney who will give you many convincing arguments for why you should despair rather than trust God. And in those times, beloved, you must fight, you must not surrender to thoughts of despair. You must fight for faith. You must fight to trust in God. It is a fight. It is spiritual warfare. It is battle. It is a conflict. You must fight to trust what God has revealed about Himself in His Word. You must fight to trust what God promises to you in the Bible. What God says in the scriptures is absolutely sure and certain, unlike your own thoughts and your own feelings and emotions, which are anything but sure and certain. And so to trust God, beloved, is to trust the word of God, the more sure word of God. Let's turn now to Romans 15 and verse 13. And this will be the key verse for us in our time this morning. Romans 15 and verse 13. Unlike Romans 1.16, you may not be as familiar with Romans 15.13, but I want to encourage you to memorize this verse. I encourage you to memorize this verse this week. Write it down, read it. Meditate on it, pray through it, put it to memory. Ask God to write it on the tablet of your soul. This verse is what is called a benediction. It is Paul's prayer for the church at Rome to have an experiential knowledge of the hope that they have in God. Paul is writing to a people who already have in their possession the hope of the gospel. They are believers. This is a church that Paul is writing to. So very importantly, he is not praying that they would receive hope. They are a people who already possess hope. They already have hope. Instead, he is praying that they would live in the full assurance of of the hope they already possess. Again, he is praying that they would have an experiential knowledge of their hope in Christ. He prays that they would abound in hope. That is his language. That they would abound with a felt sense of the hope they have in Christ. When you see that word abound in verse 13... You need to think in terms of abundance, wealth, overflowing. This is a measure of hope that is neither thin nor small, but overflowing in abundance. It is abounding hope. It is overflowing hope. That is the measure of hope that Paul is praying for this church to experience. Now, in this prayer, we learn God's method of cultivating hope in our lives. And Paul begins with what we will call, number one, the source of our hope. And we see this in the opening phrase Now may the God of hope stop there. Context is always important, isn't it, in studying the Bible and reading the Bible? And this verse comes as the conclusion of Paul's section on the unity between believers who are weak in faith and believers who are strong in faith as it relates to matters of liberty and conscience. This section begins in Romans 14.1. It extends all the way to Romans 15.13. Again, verse 13 concludes that section. And in an effort to exhort his readers to unity in the gospel, in the immediate context, Paul is writing about God's gift of free salvation to both Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ. This is in Romans fifteen seven through 12. Look at verse 7. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Verse 8, for I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. Who is that? The Jews. Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And now note verse 9, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And now go to verse 12, and again Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, who is that that is Christ, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles, that's you and me, in him shall the Gentiles hope. And there's our key word, hope. And so while Christians may not agree on everything in matters of liberty and conscience, we do share a common hope in the gospel. We do share a common faith and a common Savior. And it is Paul's prayer that this hope will abound in the lives of his readers. And so I ask you, how is your hope cultivated in your life? How do we do this? Well, it begins there in verse 13 with the clear recognition that God is the source of your hope. This is what Paul means when he says the God of hope. God is the God of hope in the sense that God is the source of your hope. God is both the object of our hope, we hope in God, and he is also the source of our hope. Our hope comes from God. Therefore, hope is not something That you can buy. You can't order hope from Amazon. Or from any website. It doesn't work that way. The only source of hope is from God who gives it freely to you in the gospel. Nowhere else. And so listen very carefully to what I say Your hope does not come from the world. Your hope does not come from your health. Your hope does not come from your family, from your parents, from your spouse, from your children. It does not come from the government. It does not come from the economy. It does not come from your money or your possessions. It comes exclusively from God, the God of heaven. Remember the letter that I began with this morning, Cameron Dodd. She said this in that letter. There is still joy and love and hope even in this broken world because Matt was not the source of it. God is. God is. That's coming from a woman who has just watched her husband die. God is the source of my hope. To place your hope in anything other than God is to set yourself up for great disappointment because all of these other things will eventually fail you. They will fail you. Even good things which God gives to you as good gifts that you are to enjoy, they will eventually disappoint you if you put your hope in them. At some point, as hard as it is to think about, at some point, your health will fail. At some point, your friends and your family and your loved ones, they will disappoint you. They will fail you. If you live long enough, they will die. At some point, your money and your possessions will not satisfy you. And at some point, it will all be lost. It will not last forever. Other objects of hope will fail. But not the hope in God, which is certain. Hold your place, if you would, in Romans 15. And turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. There is a... Very significant thing that Paul says here that relates to what we are talking about precisely at this moment. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. And what Timothy is doing at this point in his letter is he is addressing those who are rich. It is not a sin to be rich, but there are very careful instructions that those who are believers who are rich must take heed to. And so he says in verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world. Who is that? Everyone in this room. Have you been to India or Africa? Most parts of the world? It's not like America. We are right here. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And so enjoy God's good gifts to you, but dare not put your hope in them, because they are uncertain. Put your hope in God. Now let's go back to Romans, but to chapter 5, before we go back to chapter 15. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. I love these verses. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are no longer the enemies of God, no longer under the wrath of God because of Christ and faith in him. Verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We live in the realm of grace. That is our life now, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. What is that? That is the hope of future glory. We rejoice in that. We exult in that. And then down to verse 5, as he continues to develop the concept of hope, and hope does not disappoint. That is hope in God. It does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It is an eternal hope, an everlasting hope that you will never lose. It is sure, it is certain, it will never disappoint. Unlike anything else that you dare to put your hope in. And so now back to chapter 15. You must recognize that God is the only source of your hope. Your hope is in God and it comes from God. That brings us to number two, the quality of our hope. We understand that God is the source of our hope, but what kind of hope do we have from God? What what kind of quality does it bear? Listen, it is a hope marked by joy and peace. It is a joyful hope. It is a peaceful hope. Romans 15, 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Do you realize that it is the will of God for you to live a life of joy and peace? That is the will of God. That is what God intends for your life. And would you please notice very carefully how Paul writes and what Paul writes. He prays that God would fill them with joy and peace. That is, that they would be controlled, dominated by joy and peace. And what is more, Paul prays that God would fill them with all joy. Notice the language, with all joy and peace. This is generous language. It is a generous prayer for abounding joy and abounding peace, not just some small little portion of joy and peace. Let me ask you this. What does Jesus give to his people? He gives to his people many things, one of which is joy. I'm going to ask you again to hold your place in Romans 15 and turn with me now to the Gospel of John. John 15. I know both of our adult Sunday School classes are going through the Gospel of John. This is the upper room discourse when you get to chapters 13 through 17. It's also known as the farewell discourse. Jesus is about to be arrested He is about to be crucified, and he is giving his farewell address to the disciples. It is a very difficult address for them to hear. And yet in the midst of all of the difficult things that Jesus says to them and the difficulty that lies ahead of these men, he emphasizes really two things, joy and peace. In John 15 and verse 11... Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is the joy of Christ. And that it would be generous in their lives, that it would be overflowing in their lives. In chapter 16 and verse 24, Jesus again speaking, Until now you have asked for nothing in my name, talking about prayer, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. So he's talking about the fullness of joy that comes here through prayer. And then in chapter 17, as Jesus prays for his own in verse 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. What a statement. And do you realize that the people that Jesus is speaking to and praying for, almost all of them would be martyred? And yet they would experience the fullness of the joy of Christ in their life. That is remarkable. Jesus also gives to his people his peace. In John fourteen twenty seven. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. What kind of peace is this? Well, it's the peace of Christ. It's also, listen, a peace of mind. It is the peace that settles the heart. It is the peace that settles the mind. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. In chapter 16 and verse 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. What a statement. And so Jesus gives to his people his peace. And the very things that Jesus gives to his people, namely joy and peace, is precisely what the apostle Paul prays will be the overflowing experience of the church at Rome. And so now back to Romans 15. This is the quality of your hope. It is a joyful hope. It is a peaceful hope. It is a hope that produces in your soul the joy of Christ and the peace of Christ. And so God is the source of your hope, and your hope produces joy and peace in your soul. But listen very carefully. Joy and peace are not automatic in the Christian life. They are not automatic. There is something that you must do in order to experience the peace and the joy of Christ. And that brings us to number three, the instrument of our hope. So how does the joyful, peaceful, overflowing hope of God abound in your life? Through faith. Through faith. Faith is the key. Look at verse 13 again. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. How? In believing. In believing. As you believe. As you trust God. As you believe, the result is joy and peace. And it has to be in that order. There is believing first, and then that trust is followed by joy and peace. That's the critical order. As you trust God, His hope will abound in your life, and His hope will produce within you joy and peace that is overflowing. Faith is the instrument of our hope. I'm going to ask you again to hold your place in Romans 15. I know I'm doing that a lot. Isaiah 26. I can't resist turning here. Isaiah 26. Another wonderful promise from God. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. So encouraging. The steadfast of mind. You will keep. In perfect peace. Not just peace. But shalom, shalom. Perfect peace. Why? Because he trusts in you. He trusts in you. And so notice the critical order. Trusting God. Produces peace. You trust God. You rely upon God. Your confidence is in God. And then follows peace. Verse 4, trust in the Lord forever. For in God, the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. Listen, beloved, God is your rock. He is strong. You can trust him. And as you do, you will experience the shalom of God, the peace of God. Now, back to Romans 15. And that should be the last time I say back to Romans 15. And I ask you this question By what power do these things happen in your life? That brings us to number four in our little outline the power of our hope. The experiential knowledge of abounding joyful, peaceful hope is not owing to your power. You could never produce this. It is owing to the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joy and peace, where are they found elsewhere other than the upper room discourse? They are fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 They are produced by the power of the Spirit. And faith, where does faith come from? Is that a natural work of man? No, it is produced by the power of the Spirit. It is the power of regeneration by the Spirit of God that produces saving faith in the soul of a man or a woman. And so faith is the instrument. It is given by the Spirit, and that faith produces the fruits of the Spirit, namely joy and peace. And so as you trust God, and as you experience the hope of God, which produces joy and peace in your soul, know that it is owing to the power of the Holy Spirit and not your own power. Overflowing, joyful, peaceful hope Cannot be experienced any other way except for the power of the Spirit. And so we're talking about things that are supernatural, things that are otherworldly. We're talking about heavenly realities upon earth by the power of God's Spirit. Now, as we have said in previous messages, there is a close relationship between faith. And hope, and we have defined hope this way, hope is faith in the future tense. I love that definition. Hope is faith in the future tense. It is trusting God for your future. And so if you are going to cultivate hope in your life, you must fight for faith. That is the main point of the morning. You must fight for faith. You must trust God with your life, especially as it relates to your future. It's faith in God for the future. Now, I am going to ask you to leave Romans 15, but we won't come back to it. So turn, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5. And this was my first memory verse as a Christian. Proverbs 3 and verse 5. You know the verse. You're familiar with it. Trust in yourself, trust in your money, trust in your portfolio, trust in your retirement, trust in your family, trust in your skills. No, trust in Yahweh with half of your heart, with all of your heart, all of it, with all of your heart. And then there's a warning. And do not lean on your own understanding. Don't do that. Do you know why we are warned not to lean on our own understanding? Because we don't know very much. We don't understand things very well. We are so weak and frail and limited in our knowledge of things. To lean on your own understanding is to collapse That will not hold you up. In the bulletin insert, there is a quote from James Koch. He says, faith is the capacity to trust God while not being able to make sense out of everything. Do you think Cameron Dodd could make sense out of her husband dying? Leaving four children? Who understands that? I don't understand that. But I trust God because He knows better than I do and He always does what is best. And so let me ask you this critical question at this point. Can you trust God? And when I ask that question, my accent is upon the word God. Can you trust God? In other words, is God trustworthy? Is he worthy of your confidence? Is he worthy of your trust? Is he worthy of your faith? What must be true of God in order for him to be trustworthy? Trust in God is predicated upon the character of God. And at least three things must be true of God's character in order for you to trust in him with all of your heart. God must be sovereign, he must be wise, and he must be good. If God is not all three of these, he is not trustworthy. You cannot trust him with all of your heart if he is not all three of these. But the Bible says that God is sovereign, wise, and good. He is therefore trustworthy. You can therefore trust God with all of your heart. Look at the next quote in the bulletin. We used this in the men's fellowship last Sunday night. It's from Jerry Bridges' book on trusting God. I can't commend that book enough to you. It's an anonymous quote, and it says, This God in his love always wills what is best for us. Now, this is talking exclusively to Christians. Read that again. God, in His love, always wills what is best for us. God always does what is best for you. Always. No exceptions. In His wisdom, He always knows what is best. Do you think God ever fails to know what is best for you? And in His sovereignty, He has the power to bring it about. Is there anything God can't do? No. Not in terms of his power. He has unbounded power, unlimited power. And so trusting God is believing that no matter what happens in your life, God is going to do what is best for you according to his love, according to his wisdom, and according to his sovereignty. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I believe that. I stand upon that by grace. One of God's good purposes in suffering, sometimes people are tempted to think there is no good purpose in suffering, but God does have a good purpose in suffering, and one of those great purposes in our suffering is to teach us to trust in him. Turn with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And this is a verse that we looked at at the beginning of our series, but we only looked at part of it, and I intentionally left off what we'll look at this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, this is the verse I read. I think it was our first message, developing the reality of spiritual depression, looking at Paul's life and his suffering. In this chapter, he talks a lot about affliction. I have affliction underlined all the times Paul uses it, affliction, affliction, affliction. This book of 2 Corinthians is the most painful book to read when it comes to the sufferings of Paul personally. And so he says in verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively, how how excessively, Paul, beyond our strength. So that we despaired even of life. We didn't think we would survive. Question. Does God ever give you more than you can handle? Absolutely. What does this verse mean? If not that. We couldn't handle it. We were despairing even of life. Why would God do that? Why would God afflict Paul that way? And his co-laborers in the gospel. Verse 9, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. So that, there's the purpose statement, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Listen, suffering and affliction is the school of trust. It is the school where the major lesson is teaching you to trust God. That's why God afflicted Paul with an affliction that was beyond his ability to bear. He had the sentence of death within himself. Thought he would die, didn't think he would survive. So that he would run to God and forsake any confidence in himself. Verse 10, I love this. Who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. And he will yet deliver us. That is an amazing statement. He on whom we have set our hope. Hoping in God does not make your suffering go away. In chapter one, we've set our hope on God. And then you go to chapter four, he chronicles some of his suffering. Chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, we are afflicted in every way. I've never been able to say that in my life. I've never experienced that measure of affliction. But for Paul, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Isn't that glorious? Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. What an amazing life. And then, chapter 6 and verse 10 as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Man, the life of Paul. He's sorrowful. There's a lot to be sad about in his life. So much affliction, so much pain, so much betrayal. Especially by this church, the church at Corinth, the church that broke his heart. Sorrowful, yet, yet rejoicing. Rejoicing, how? In the hope that he has in Christ. That's how. By trusting in God. That's how. Now just, we'll turn away from Second Corinthians, we're going to come back for our last verse, but... Let's turn now to a couple of psalms that are so rich. Psalm 31, Psalm 31, 14 and 15. A psalm of David, a man who knew what it meant to suffer. Psalm 31, 14 and 15. I love this passage, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. How can David trust in God? He can trust in God because his life is completely in God's hands. And what kind of hands does God have? His hands are sovereign, wise, and good. And, beloved, that is where your life is this morning. Your life is in the hands of God, and his hands are sovereign, wise, and good. Therefore, you can say with David, I trust you. I trust you. You are my God. You can trust God for your future. You can trust God for the hope of future glory and for the hope of present good, even in this life. Psalm 27, just a few psalms over to the left, another psalm of David. He ends the psalm in verse 13 and 14. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That is in this life. That is his hope. That even in this life, before future glory, I will see the goodness of God. Verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. That is wonderful. Live in the Psalms, beloved. And now for our last passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it's critical to recognize that your trials are ordained by God, that God controls what trials he sends into your life. They are not meaningless, they are not random, they are by God's good sovereign design And you can trust that when you go through whatever trial it is, that God will give you the necessary grace to endure your trial and to profit from it. And that is what we learn here in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. I wish we had more time to develop this whole chapter. We don't. But God gave Paul an incredible experience. Do you remember what God did with Paul? He caught him up to paradise. That is the third heaven. Paul went to heaven. Now, I have known many people who have died and gone to heaven. I have never met anybody who went to heaven and came back. But that was Paul. He went to heaven in some experience that he didn't even fully understand. And he came back. And he saw things there and he heard things there that were incredible. And following his trip to heaven, to paradise, God then brought affliction into the life of Paul. And why would God do this? God always has a reason, he always has a good reason. Verse 7 He did it to humble Paul. He says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, I realize there's all kinds of interpretive controversy in verse 7. And I don't want to attempt to straighten all of that out this morning, but please note in verse 7 what is clear, is that this affliction, whatever it might be, is God-sent and it has the very precise purpose of humbling Paul. To keep him from exalting himself. Imagine going to heaven, coming back. What that might do to your ego. And so Paul was a man just like you and like me, susceptible to pride. He needs to be humbled. And so God brings this affliction into his life and humbles him. God uses suffering to manifest our weaknesses. God uses our suffering to humble us for our good. Our trials demonstrate our inability to live life independent from God. It drives us to God. It causes us to trust God, to run to him. And that is exactly what we see Paul doing here in verse 8. He runs to God. He says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Three seasons of prayer, Paul says, God, please, Please take it away. Take it away. Take it away. It hurts. It's so painful. Please take it away. And what does God say? He says, No. No. But He doesn't leave him with a no, He leaves him with a glorious promise of sufficient grace. Verse 9, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Beloved healthy Christian living, is recognizing your weaknesses. And it is recognizing, listen very carefully, the all-sufficient grace of God to match whatever trial God ordains into your life. There is one final quote from John Piper. He says this about Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul was in danger of pride and self-exaltation, and God took steps to keep him humble. This is an utterly strange thing in our self saturated age. God thinks humility is more important than comfort. Humility is more important than freedom from pain. He will give us a mountaintop experience in paradise and then bring us through anguish of soul, lest we think that we have risen above the need for total reliance on His grace. So, His purpose is our humility and lowliness and reliance. On him. The great hope of 2 Corinthians 12 is that God has an unlimited supply of grace, and his grace is more than sufficient to match your every need, your every trial, to enable you to endure whatever suffering God ordains for you, and to profit from it, and to even then have joy and peace. Well, there is a fourth way to cultivate Christian hope in your life. Number four, learn contentment. I really, really, really wanted to cover this one this morning. But we don't have enough time. And so, Lord willing, we will have to wait until next time to look at this point. But let me say one thing very briefly. And again, I'm appealing back to that letter that I began with, that letter from Cameron Dodd, the day she lost her husband. She says, it felt for a brief moment and terrible moment like I had lost everything. What a terrible feeling. She continues, What do you do when you feel like that? Pick up a bottle of medicine? Pick up a bottle of alcohol? She says, I picked up my Bible. I picked up my Bible. And alone in my room, read passages that just hours before I had read to Matt to encourage him. I realized that these verses I could now read just to my own soul. Verses like, God is our refuge and strength. I thought about how the things that I so dearly loved about Matt were really only tangible reflections of who God is. His love and joy and humility and kindness. And that lo and behold, and I love this statement... I still have him. I still have him. And then she says this, and therefore, I still have everything. Everything. One last thing. If you have God, which you do by grace through the gospel, you have everything. You have everything. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are our all in all and that your grace is more than sufficient to match our every trial. We thank you that even in those times where we might feel like we have lost everything, we read in your word that you are our refuge and strength, that you are our hope, that we can trust you with all of our heart for our lives, our times, are in your hands. We may not understand why things are happening, but we always know that you know what is best and that you do what is best and that you are in control. And so even this morning, Father... We thank you for our trials. We recognize that they are ordered by you. And we recognize that they are useful to us. That they teach us to not trust in ourselves, but to trust in you who raises the dead. Father, I pray for this congregation that you would fill them with your hope and with joy and with peace in believing that they might abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray this in the name of and for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen.